John is the book we're about to kick, kick into. Um, welcome, welcome. If, if every individual person here, um, I just wanted you to take a moment and hear my individual welcome to you. Thank you for being here. It's a privilege to have each and individual one of you. If you're new, if you've been here forever, um, so good, so good to have you uh, and to dig into this passage with you. Um, John, John's Gospel. It's going to be fun. Uh, we're only going to do the first sort of five or so chapters to kick off with because there's just so much goodness in there and we're going, to, we're going to mull it over. Now, one of the really interesting things about John's gospel, he kicks it off 1 to 18 with this massive sort of prophetic kind of like start of a fantasy movie kind of section. Um, but our world is not like that. Like, our world doesn't feel like a fantasy movie. Our world is what um, the philosopher Charles Taylor calls disenchanted. As the West has moved through enlightenment to modernism and the technological revolution, our world has become disenchanted. We don't believe in magic anymore. Have you, have you noticed that? Now, part of that's good because I'm with Stevie Wonder, you know, superstition ain't the way. Um, and uh, as we've, we, we sort of work through the regular laws that the world operates by, we've realised that many, many superstitions are quite untrue. I mean, the, I, I, I am... I am really glad that we no longer, like some sort of ancient cultures, thought that uh, an eclipse is caused by a celestial dragon flying across the sky and eating the moon, and then you have to bang drums so that it will sort of like you know, get scared and regurgitate it up again and leave, leave and give you the moon back. But because we just know the physical reasons why things happen, what we've done is we've come to believe that the physical things of why things happen is all that exists. Technology's really become so powerful that we believe that this powerful thing is all that there is. And so the things that Western thinking, Western philosophy once thought of as transcendent, as above and beyond our senses and yet still real, has just been collapsed into and shrunk down into the things that are, it calls, imminent. All the only things that we can see, touch and measure with scientific instruments. We don't ask questions about supernatural or metaphysical things, about magic or God or gods. It's all stuff you can touch. Now, Hobart's a little bit interesting because you guys, I'm from Queensland, so I don't know. See how I'm calling it, you guys at this point? Um, they're reacting a little bit against that somewhat with Dark Mofo. There's this, cause, and there is this sense in the world that even though she's done away with the idea of God, it's like the world still misses him. And they want a bit of spirituality. They want some connection with something that's transcendent. And yet, really, I mean, tomorrow morning, uh, I doubt your co-worker is going to tell you what the spirits told them this morning. You know, like that's probably not. Unless you work in an aromatherapy shop or maybe a mental health ward, then maybe you might. But you're probably not going to have that conversation tomorrow morning. We live in a secular age and a disenchanted world. And I actually think Christians have that, that air that we breathe is actually change the way we think just as much. Maybe even evangelical ones more so than some of our uh, Pentecostal or other brothers and sisters. Now, but John's world is thoroughly enchanted, right? When John writes this little section here about the world, he's, his world is not just sort of maybe slightly haunted by the ghost of the God who used to be here. No, no, no. His world still has spirits and gods and prophecies. It is all about spirits and gods and prophecies. And so I want to give you three pictures of what the prologue to John's gospel is and is about. First one, it is like the introduction to a fantasy novel. 
Who here? Who here likes a fantasy novel or a fantasy movie? Is there anyone? There was one person this morning. All right, we got a few. Okay, cool. This is much, much. <laughs> this is working out much better than this morning. Um, uh, fantasy often has prophecies, doesn't it? And the prophetic, the prophetic bit of the book often actually tells you about how the world started. You know, from the founding of the world, this, 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 and then, and then, and then this happens, and then the prediction that the hero will come, and then this is how it's going. So it shapes not only the history, but also the world that is, but also what's going to happen in the future. And just for a moment. You can sort of suspend your disbelief that this is how the world works and you, you, you go with the story. John's, that, that prologue, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, and then he takes you through. That is setting the scene of a magical world. You see, our world is the world that John's describing here. The real one, the one you're sitting in now, it's, it's not a make-believe place, this world John's got here. That is us. In our world, there is darkness and light. In our world, there is good and evil. In our world, miracles happen. In our world, daring adventure is risked by the hero to save the world. And there is glory at the end. And so John lays out, like a good prophecy sequence from a movie, the shape of what's to come. And like it, it goes back to creation and then all the way through to the future tells the story. Now, the second thing that a, this prologue does, that this little section of John's Gospel does, and by the way, do yourself a favour, have it out. Be, be just reading it while I'm talking rather than even listening to me. It's great. Um, the second thing that it does, it's, it's like a table of contents for the whole Gospel. Like a table of contents for the rest of the book. Every major theme that this Gospel digs into is here. Life as this big concept. Well, that comes up in chapter 5, but it starts in verse 4. Life is light chapter 8 in John's Gospel, but it's there in verse 4 in the prologue. Light is rejected by darkness. In chapter 3 of John's Gospel, it's there in verse 5, but the light's not overcome by the darkness. Chapter 12 of John's Gospel, but it's there in verse 5. Uh, I could keep going. A bit, I didn't even get to halfway, but I think you'll just get bored. Light, Christ not being received by his own, being born of God and not from flesh, seeing the glory, um, the one and only Son, truth, truth being found in Jesus, no one having seen God. This is like a mini story of the whole, like that scene was. It's a table of contents for the book of John. And so as we go through, what I'll be doing is we'll be opening up these passages, but then seeing where it's drawing out material from the prologue each time. and see what John's doing with it. Now, the third thing, because it's not just a table of contents, right? Tables of contents are pretty boring. And this is beautiful. It's almost poetry. It's just it's magic, and and it's so. If you were thinking about this as a report, not not it's not it's not like a a match report from an AFL game where it's got like you know the ones that's just like goal minute thirteen behind minute fourteen free kick minute fifteen. It's it's not that. It's like a three minute highlights package showing you the whole match with the drama and the excitement and all of that concentrated within it. It's like a work of art in and of itself. And so now, jam-packed as it is with too many goodies to eat at once, much like the lolly bag that Raphael got from his birthday party that he went to last weekend, we are going to dig into the enchanted highlights package prophecy that is the prologue of John. Verses 1 to 5. Dig in with me. Verse 1, 1 to 5. We begin at the beginning, and John takes us all the way back to the foundation of the world. I mean, we saw Zechariah do the same thing. Zephaniah, sorry, do the same thing, didn't we, a couple of weeks ago. But, but this is so Genesis. In the beginning, all things created, light in the dark, all created by a word. So it's just, it's just going straight back to Genesis. But it's different too. 
John actually gives us new information about creation in this prophetic word. Instead of specific words, let there be light, there's actually a new character introduced. He's not saying, he doesn't, he doesn't record specific words doing the creation, but this character called the word does the creating. John's adding a new element to the story. And this word was the agent of all creation. It was with God in the beginning and it was God in the beginning. Now, some of you may have had a discussion. Has anyone here had a discussion with the Jehovah's Witness about these verses? The word was God. And so if you have, then you'll know that their Bible has a different translation. The word was a God. Now, because the Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in a trinity, they don't believe Jesus was God at all. They believe that Jesus was the first angel created by God. And you might think, well, does that really matter? This person seems quite nice on my doorstep, a lovely human being. Well, the answer is it does matter. It actually causes some big theological problems. And I'll give you one example of a big theological problem that this creates. Now, the center of the, if the centre of the Bible is the cross, what would it mean for the cross if Jesus was not God? What it means is, if Jesus is not God, then when it came to forgiving humans, God didn't actually come and sort out human sin himself. He hit someone else. Do you get it? It means that the cross isn't God himself paying for the sins of humanity. It's God taking his anger out on one of his angels. And then he, and then he feels a bit better about it after having had his tantrum. This is, this is nasty. See, this would make the cross like the divine thing of you're cranky with someone in your family, so you kick the cat and hurt it to take out and deal with your anger. This, this is not the God of Scripture. If Jesus is not divine, the cross is an awful awful, awful thing and an indictment on God's character. But if it is God himself taking the pain, then it's beautiful and it's his love. Now, if you know a bit of ancient Greek, you can look into the grammar of verse 1 and why it actually is best to translate it was God, not was a God from the original language. But even if you don't, you don't have to know any Greek. Just go to the next verse, verse 3. Through him all things were made. Okay. Sure, they might say, but it probably just means that God made him and then used him to make everything else. But, but the, the rest of the verse kind of rules that out. It's almost as if God knew this is where people's minds might go. And he says, no, 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 not just he made everything, but also without him, nothing was made that has been made. There's nothing that's in the category of it used to not exist, then it came to exist that didn't have that happen because Jesus did it. Because the word did it which means that the word never came to be itself. The word was always with the Father. Or you can see the same thing in verse 18 where Jesus is called God directly, or the same thing in chapter 3, or the same thing in chapter 5. John's Gospel's got all sorts of help for you there. So uh, don't be freaked out, don't be scared when someone pulls Greek grammar on you to try and tell you in John 1 that Jesus was not really divine. Now... Back to, back to the text. Now, if you were a Greek, maybe you knew a little bit of philosophy, John's use of language here would be ringing some bells for you because the word word, I like that, the word word, uh, or logos in Greek, that's where we get the word logic from, or the ology in biology, or neurology. The logos, the, the, the logic, the word, the information, the, the, the nature of the universe for an ancient Stoic philosopher, the, the principle that, that holds everything together, the thing that makes the universe work as it does, the magic behind how things work, that's what logos means. And, and 
I mean, to a modern scientist, maybe you might think the grand unified theory of everything might be something that's a, that would that would have been a part of the logos for an ancient Greek. And now John is loading up all those different meanings. In fact, God even said in in the Old Testament, the Hebrews had a sense of this. In wisdom, I created the world. With this principle of wisdom, I made everything come to be. And John is loading all of that up. He's all of that logic, that principle, that word spoken by God that makes everything in the universe work correctly. That the light that lights up everything so that we can see the life that enables us to live and breathe and think. The the grand unification of of every force and bit of the universe all together, all of that stuff, the thing that was that became a person. It's a very big, grand set of things to be gathering together to become a puny human. The word that created light, that gives every atom and quark its purpose and its marching orders, that that formed life from carbon became a splotch of carbon. A man who brings life and light to war. I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but that's okay. Now, look, I, uh, I hope that as we're reading this, you're starting to realize that the, church, the early church had no choice but to work out a doctrine like the Trinity. Have you, have you ever thought of the fact that it might be weird that the word Trinity is not in the Bible? And thought, well, is that, does that matter then? Is that, is that important? Well, I just, think, I just think they didn't have much of a choice. I, I mean... Sorry, for those, first of all, for those who don't know what the word Trinity means, the Trinity is, is a way of talking about the fact that God has revealed himself to us in three persons. Uh, there is one God, but he exists as a three somehow. The Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and yet the Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Holy Spirit. They are, they are distinct, and yet they're one. Now, they're not, they're not three gods who just get on really well. They are a oneness. Their God is one, but, but within that perfect unity there is some diversity. Now, no theologian just thought up, hey, that's a cool idea, let's have a weird God. Um, It's passages like this that make that necessary. Because John says, the word is God, and this this word made everything, which is basically the definition of God, right? But John also says he was with God in the beginning. So somehow he's not exactly the same thing as... And and then he created all things... um, Uh, which is what God did. But at the same time, he's the only son of God. So he is, and yet he is something different than... And then yet, then he's God himself again a few words later in verse 18. So you see this, this, this sort of... All these bits of John's gospel where you see this word being with God, and yet he is God, and yet he's somehow slightly distinct from God, and you just have to do something with that. And then you get to chapters 14 to 16 of John later on and the Holy Spirit rocks up and you've got a third member of the party and again it goes, gets even crazier. You see, what, what theologians are trying to do when they, when they uh, are trying to describe the Trinity is just trying to reflect Scripture. They're just trying to show you what's there. These three are so united that they share a single will and yet as God describes himself we see the three members of the Trinity relate to each other in different ways. I mean, in John's Gospel later on, the Holy Spirit glorifies the Father and the Son, and the Son glorifies the Father, but the Father and the Son don't glorify the Spirit. That's just not how the the game works. And we'll see that as we go through a little bit more. Now, one thing that I think is really cool about this is that there's both unity and distinction. Unity and distinction. And it's actually kind of healthy and helpful for human relationships to recognise that as well. Have you ever seen a couple where there is only unity and like you, you can't even tell where one person starts and one person begins and ends. Like they are way too close. 
Not just physically, like just everything about them is wrapped up in each other and it doesn't quite look healthy. You seen that? I've seen that. It's not great. They've, it's almost like they've lost their identity in each other. Whereas here in God, you have this unity that where, where identity is not lost. And the same, have you, have you seen a couple who you can't really even tell that they're a couple because they're not that close? They don't even seem like there's interaction. There's no intimacy, no closeness. And you're like, well, where's that gone? Yeah, sure, you really, you let each other do your own thing. It's so great. You don't really get in the way of each other's dreams. But where's the closeness? Neither of these things are good. And this is important, particularly as a parent, right? So in our relationships, in our families, we need to have unity and yet distinction. Uh, so, for example, if, if we're in a public situation and I, and I react to a child, one of my children, behaving in a way that might make me feel not great, maybe it might even seem to my child like I'm ashamed of them. See, if I think of myself as them and they do something that would be inappropriate for me to do, I'm like, oh, no, no, don't do that, and I make it seem like I'm ashamed of them. Do you hear the message that they've heard from me? That's not good. Whereas if I'm like, they're a kid. That's okay. I'll go talk to them about it and help them learn to do something different next time. But I'm not, but I'm not going to be ashamed because I, as if, I've so closely identified myself with my child that I can't recognise, no, 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 no. I'm not them and I don't need to pretend that I am. There's a healthiness to differentiation, knowing where there's unity, but also where it's put some distinctions too. Just a little thought. Anyway, we're on a long way from John 1. We need to get back. Verses 4 and 5. 4 and 5. This is such a beautiful description of the word. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, which brings light to all humanity. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not mastered it. As he did before with the word, word, we're seeing John pick up an old category and enhancing it, adding something to it. Because light here could simply just be the, the light that comes in creation, light and darkness. But all of a sudden, you're thinking, well, the darkness hasn't overcome the light. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. This seems like a fight now. This is like, this, this is almost like darkness might be bad, the evil, like the sort of the Sauron character. Maybe there's a f cosmic fight here going on. It's not just, well, before we get dark and now you turn on a light and the room's light and morally neutral. There's something interesting here. The darkness has not managed to come to grips with the light. And that's beautiful and encouraging in a prophecy that's going to shape our whole world, isn't it? If you think about it, because this is our world John's talking about. The darkness has not mastered, overcome, understood, come to grips with the light. That's encouraging. Now, we're going to pick up, John develops that. I'm not going to leave. All of these things that I'm sort of like teasing you with, all of the things that John's going to do with these beautiful, beautiful concepts as we go through it. Now, verse 6. This is interesting. Light rarely needs anything to announce it's coming, kind of by definition. When the lights go on, you know they're on because you, you can see. That's what light is. It's a visible thing. But this light has an announcer, verse 6. It's, it's got an opening speaker, a character witness sent from God. His name was John. This is John the Baptist. And I don't know about you, but I love I love John the Baptist. Anyone here is like a big fan? I'm a big fan of John the Baptist. He's awesome because he loved his cousin Jesus, who happened, who also was his younger cousin, who just also happened to be his God. And he didn't want to steal his limelight. He wanted more limelight on Jesus. Now, like that's not because John was a shy guy, right, and doesn't like the limelight. This guy started a movement. He was a leader. He had people who were his disciples. 
the kind of person who wants to start a movement and have disciples and yet says, no, this guy is way more important than me. Get a load of him. He's excited. He's boasting. See, I told you he was better than me. I told you he was more important than me. I've got nothing on him. I love him celebrating his cousin Jesus. It's so beautiful. But I wonder if sometimes you and I don't match John's beauty. And I wonder if that's why I like John so much, because I want to be like him. See, I think that sometimes I'd rather people think that I'm a good person than that, I, that Jesus is so great that he would love even me. You know, when you're doing evangelism and you want people to think well of Jesus, so you're like, oh, I want them to have a good impression of me. And so you end up just really worrying about them having a good impression of you rather than having a good impression of Jesus. Whereas John was like, no, I'm happy to look stupid. I'm, I'm, I'm going to decrease. I want people to think well of him. I wish I was more like John. Right, verse 10 to 13, the light in the world. The light didn't light up everything, sadly, in verse 10. The light came to the world, but the world didn't know him. And of all the Gospels in John, we see Jesus' mixed relationship with this broad group of people who are following him. He does not trust them as we go on in John's Gospel. They don't put their trust in him. And when he comes to his own, his own people, they reject him. It's the saddest line, isn't it? the one who brought these people forth and they reject him. But he didn't leave. It's a beautiful thing. To anyone who would receive him, in fact, he gave, he gave them this status of being a child of God. He wasn't jealous for his role either, like John, but would share it with people, would bring other people into it, to share his divine origins with people who weren't themselves divine, to bring light to their darkness. It's a beautiful thing. Now we're nearly there. Verses 16 and 17. They are beautiful and they are extra beautiful if you happen to be Jewish. I don't know if anyone here's got Jewish background, but verses 16 and 17 are extra beautiful if you're Jewish because it reminded it reminds them of the grace that they have been given, but also that now they've got a superior grace to replace it. Let me read the verses for you. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. See, it was already a favour from God that he let them know what sin was and who he was in the, the law that Moses gave. That he was, he was their God and he blessed them for obedience and disciplined them when they sinned for their good. This was, this was good. This is a blessing from God that he would be there with them. But God said, I don't, I, I don't just want to tell you about me. I just want you to know me from a report. I want to be with you. I want to be with you. I want to know you. And so there's a, the, the, the interesting word, that grace upon grace, there you might have as the translation. We have all received grace in replacement of grace, is it's more literal. It's like, it's like it's t- I'll give you something really good, but it's not enough. I've got to give you something better. I want to be with you. I want to know you. I want to come and live among you, that you'll know who I really am. grace upon grace it's premium grace it's like it's like not two dollars fifty a liter it's free but it's but it's still it's still like it's premium grace it's like it's like above and beyond that god would want to not just have you know about him and you know be a good little boy or girl but that he'd want to know you and want you to know him see that's 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 what this is all about this whole section here 
is that the word of God, one who would come to, to, to the world to be a person. See, what's the truth of God? What, what is the word of God? It's not a book. The word of God is a person. Jesus Christ. He was a person even before he became a human. He was the second person in the Trinity, God the Son. He, was, he is the word, the word of God. Now, the Bible that you have is a human enshrinement of that word, sure, a divinely inspired, humanly written testimony, as John was testifying to the word, testimony to that living, breathing word, Jesus. And yes, they're living and active when they're wielded by the Spirit. But now Jesus has come to listen to God is to listen to a person speaking to you. It's relational, not informational. Like, how do you... Stop and take a moment. This is your moment to be with yourself for half a second. How do you read your Bible? How do you read your Bible? Is it like studying for an exam or is it like reading a birthday card written to you? Most of the time it's probably going to be like studying for examples or, or, or it'll be like just sort of scanning some data because it's hard to get ourselves in that space. But, but please, I encourage you, take time and space and, and before you read the Bible, get yourself in that mindset where God wants to come and be near you and doesn't just want you to know about him, he wants you to know him and that's why he gave you this word, this Bible, this testimony about Jesus. So train your mind to say, hey, hey, soul, today we're listening to Jesus because he loves us and he wants to be with us. Now, sometimes the, uh, the first thing that you'll do is you then start reading the Bible will be, Jesus, I don't get this. <laughs> Help me. But that's a good thing, isn't it? Because then you're relating to Jesus the person. Not just pretending you've got to study for an exam and get it right, but relating to Jesus. Do that. Pray that question, prayer. Because he will help you. All right. Um. Later in John's Gospel, uh, you get Philip asking Jesus the question, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. I don't know if you know that bit. Um, and Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. That's what John says in verse 18 here. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, he made him known. See, in the scriptures, we, we see God revealed. And in our prayers, we do business with that person, Jesus, whose job it is to let us know who the Father is. The Jesus who lived for you, the Jesus who died for you, the Jesus who rose for you, the Jesus who is now alive and is in heaven interceding for God the Father, interceding for you with God the Father in heaven. If you want to know God and if you want to be connected with God and you want a relationship with God, we look to Jesus. You go to Jesus. And if, you, and if you think, I wonder what God would be like if I went up and talked to him. Look at Jesus. Read about Jesus. Think about his responses. Because if you want to see the Father, John says, Jesus has made him known. The one who died for you, who did not stop at anything to be with you. He has made God the Father know. That's how we know God's heart for us. How about I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, this, this magical opening up of our world in John's prologue. Um, 
We thank you that we're not just going along and doing our thing in this world and there's no magic to it. There's no fellowship of the ring to be a part of. There's no, no great story and great uh, battle of our age. But rather, Lord, you stepped into our world. You want to get to know people. You want people to be a part of your fellowship. And it matters and it's significant and it will shape and change the world. Whether people follow you or not. Whether people will come to your son for forgiveness or not. It's so great. God, we just pray that you would help us to get to know you better that you would help us to connect with your son, Jesus, that as we read your word, we would hear you speak to us. Pray that we would read expecting that. Father, we just uh, want to thank you so much for everything that you have revealed to us in your word. But Lord, help us not to study, study it as studying any other book, but to listen to you speak to us. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.